Welcome to The Marketer's Journey, a podcast that delivers real conversations and fresh perspectives from senior marketing executives who share the journey they've taken and the buyer journey they create. And now here's your host, Randy Frisch. Welcome to The Marketer's Journey. I'm Randy, and today I've got a great guest. In fact, when you listen to Paul talk, you're gonna say, this is the type of person that I need as a CMO. Now for context, Paul started his career in sales, which I think is part of what really distinguishes him and sets him up as someone who understands that full buyer journey that anyone is going through today. And the demands that marketing has, not just to create leads as he puts it, but really to make sure that we're that they're doing the right things to help deals move across that finish line. Now, the cool part about Paul as well is he's had perspectives from different sizes of organizations. You know, companies who have just raised a bit of money and are trying to scale, all the way to now a public company where he is CMO in Axway and has to deal with all sorts of different shareholder type of concerns, which we hit on today. You know, the second half of the podcast today, we'll talk about the role of content, an area that I care so much about. And Paul puts it really well as to creating the content that's going to create context for your buyers, not just creating the content that sets your brand as an understood entity as a whole. So without further ado, great combo today with Paul French. Hey, Paul, thanks so much for making time to chat about your journey. We're going to start off with how you became the CMO over at Axway. Thanks. I appreciate it, Randy. Um, my story at Axway is actually one of um, a recidivist. I'd actually spent almost eight years at Axway in a variety of roles um, about six years ago, five and a half, six years ago, and um, and had went off to be CMO at a couple of mid-sized companies and one startup. Um, when a, a sort of an interesting twist of fate had me reconnect with the leadership team at Axway, who I still had a great relationship with, I was actually interviewing a guy um, or connecting with a guy over LinkedIn who wanted to get some insights about Axway. And at the end, he's like, well, it sounds like you really you still have a great feeling, even though you've been gone for a while. Would you go back? And it was kind of a throwaway question he asked. And I said, you know, I probably would, you know. And so I texted one of the leaders uh, that I still knew at Axway and said, hey, you know, this guy who, who we ended up. Uh, hiring to run our uh, European go-to-market um, sales group, said, you know, he asked me this question. I thought it was pretty funny. And and, he, and the CEO texted me like two hours later, like, okay, we got to talk. You got to come back. Right. So um, I've been back about a year. That's great. That's great. You know what? I, I've only a handful of times reached out to people trying to get them back. And, and uh, you know, maybe 25% of the time we've, we've managed to do that. But that's that's all often great when you can come back and having had so many other lessons learned along the way. And it sounds like you definitely would have had that because when you left there, you were VP, you came back, you had already been CMO twice, I believe. Uh, yeah, three times if you include a small startup where we were you know, raising money on the consumer side of the business. And so it, it actually was a very interesting to apply the lessons. And I actually have the luxury of you know, there's things to fix every time you walk in anywhere, right? You've been at your place and you look and think, ah, someday we, we need to fix that. And I have the luxury of, of removing any of the barriers because I jokingly say a lot of the issues that we're trying to fix, I probably made 10 years ago, right? <laughs> it was probably my fault. And let's let, but now we can go fix it and no one's going to tell us no. So that's great. That's great. I, I like that way of looking at it. So, you know, one of the things I'm curious of that maybe you can share with people 
first off, actually today, is, that, is it a private company, a public company? What's the status of... We're publicly held. We trade on the Euronext in Paris. Um, 20 years ago, we were a, a spin out of a, a huge services company called Soprasteria. Uh, but we're an independent company now, though we're, we're fairly closely held. Gotcha. And in your career, you've had some marketing leadership opportunities a public companies, some with private companies. It's something that I haven't talked to our guests a lot about before, but maybe you could describe for us, what's the difference? You know, where does your focus have to change when you have shareholders that, that actually need quarterly updates and everything that goes along with that? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question because having had the benefit of doing it at a company where we raised $23 million and, and it was a lot of shareholders that wanted to know every five minutes to mid-sized companies where we were basically private equity owned and their idea of, of updates was very different um, and their idea of accountability was very different. And now at Axway, where we're public and, and we report and we have uh, more institutional shareholders that have their, their responses. They're all slightly different, but they all want to know you're making progress. They all want to know that you're good stewards of the investment. They all want to know that you're putting yourself in a better place tomorrow than you are today. But obviously, when you're a publicly held company or even privately held uh, by private equity, um, you have quarterly or monthly, in some cases, outcomes that you need to hit. And it isn't a question of it sure would be great if you did. It, it's a commitment to the market. You know, if, you, if you're like us, COVID, as an example, reduced our willingness to make discrete commitments for this year, for example, in terms of earnings. Uh, but that's very unusual. And, and, and so you do have a level of accountability and you have to make choices um, in terms of allocation and spend and investment in order to manage those things for the better of the business. It's really nice when you're doing a startup, for example, and, and, and uh, depending on where your money comes from, people are really excited to have you invest as fast as you can and find traction as fast as you can or, or, or scale based upon the traction as fast as you can. But, um, but there's not as many of those when you get into mid-sized businesses or certainly those that are public. Absolutely. It's, it's a good point. I think, you know, sometimes we get overwhelmed in early stage businesses where we're expected to adapt so quickly as you've outlined it. But then on the flip side of that, as you're describing, you may not have that luxury of adapting. You got to stick with that plan day in and day out because you've committed to certain numbers to the market. For sure. And, and I think um, it's, it's an interesting thing that, that I deal with every day because as much as I would like the culture to move to be something a little bit more startup-like or entrepreneurial-like where failure is encouraged, right? I, it, it's okay. We're not necessarily always taught to fail, but let's try something. Let's have a, a, a moderate understanding of what might happen. And if it works, great. If not, you know, we'll kill it and move on. Um, that's not something that's super encouraged in more mature software businesses, especially where you've got 11,000 customers and you've got different product lines and you grew by acquisition and you have different kind of subcultures inside the business and inside the customer bases. So it's it's something that you have to balance quite a lot, but but you have to be comfortable making those changes. Otherwise, you'll never change, right? I mean, you, you'll be stuck in in the old way forever. So building on that, you know, you've, you've spoken so far a little bit about how you've had to adapt. What about the teams that you form in these different types of companies and you know, the path that you suggest and marketer take? I mean, you know, these days there's a lot of sexiness that comes with, I'm joining a startup early in my career. I want to be hands-on, but I'm sure there's, there's the flip side of that story that we just don't, you know, we don't convince ourselves if we've chosen to go to the large organization where, you, where there's a lot more structure. 
Yeah. Well, I think I think marketing generally starts with one thing, and it's just the customer perspective. And your customer is sometimes your end customer. It could be your customer's customer, right? Where depending on what you're selling and to whom. It could also be an internal constituencies and customer bases, right? I, I preached to our guys that one of our largest customers is the sales organization. I was a sales guy, sales leader for 15 years. So I, I understand how the interplay should work if you do it right. And it isn't, you know, hey, marketing you know, this is what we want you to do. And marketing says, yes, sir, I'll go do that for you. That That is a low value marketing operation from a sales perspective. So so trying to, to look at how you can change the business, I think, starts with what are the customer expectations internally and externally? And then you cross that with the outcomes that you're trying to accomplish. And then you build something that will work uh, to fit those ends. So you, you hit on one area there that I want to kind of finish this segment on, which is that transition that you went through as a sales leader into a marketing leader along the way you were even a CEO. How do you think that's helped you build a better relationship with your sales leaders today? Well, I, it is, um, I think it's invaluable in that I have the, the ability to say I've been there, you know, and I've, I've tried these things. I've carried a bag. I've had a big number. I've closed deals sitting in a you know, somebody's lobby on the last day of the quarter, you know, at the end of the year. And so there's a little trust that that is granted probably in advance of the the actions that would typically earn trust, right? And then it's up to you to, to turn it into something real. But but understanding, you know, the path to proficiency of a sales team, understanding how enablement can get consumed, understanding how the balance between inbound and outbound, and understanding all those pieces that sales guys have to confront every single day. And I just preached to, to my team, the, the marketing team, that there's no um, nobody wins when you track BS marketing references and KPIs, right? There's way too many cases where marketing leaves a QBR or marketing leaves an end of year or business plan and goes, look, look at all the leads we created. Nobody cares or nobody should, right? It's all about, you know, how, how many opportunities happen? What was the revenue? What were the cost of those opportunities? Are you, are you making meaningful impact to the business and not just you know, kind of following the same marketing plan that was, you know, we all got really excited about in 2004. I think all those things, having sat in a lot of different seats, having sat in a corporate development seat and, and seeing where, you know, the levers of valuing a business really matter, having sat in a CEO seat, admittedly of a startup where, you know, I was watching the cash position three times a day, all those <laughs> things kind of, you know, fill you, fill you up with what does it really take to add value as a marketer in the business? That's great. Well, Paul, we're going to dig deeper into some of the elements you hit on around you know, how do you think about you know, orchestrating a journey that you've really teed up because it's, it's really about sales and marketing alignment. And I think we'll hit that right after a break here on The Marketer's Journey. Want to improve the buyer journey for your customers and your prospects? Look no further than our presenting sponsor, Uberflip. Named a leader in content experience by G2 and a leader in content activation by Forrester, Uberflip will help you accelerate every buyer journey by creating bingeable experiences that will allow your prospects to consume more content faster. Companies like Trimble, Wiley, and 3M are using Uberflip to power their go-to-market strategies, and we created one just for you. Head to uberflip.com journey to see how Uberflip can help you leverage the power of personalized content experiences. One of the areas 
as Paul and I just discussed is this idea of leaving a company in the middle of your tenure and then returning back to that company and the different things that you may have seen along the way. And it, it got me thinking as we were chatting, you know, what is the best way to understand marketing in the grand scheme of things? There's a lot of questions these days for marketers, for the leaders in these organizations. When we look at talent and we say, well, do we want someone who stayed at a company for five, 10, 15 years, or do we want someone who's had different perspectives? I think in Paul's case, you hear how the different perspectives he's got really add up to being able to come in and say, this is why we've got to do it this way. He even hits on this idea of changing some of the things that happen along the way. And I think back to some of the points in my career, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have started a company that I'm now highly vested in and can't imagine being anywhere else. But at the same time, I cherish so much some of those early days working for larger organizations where I learned scale. I learned about the different challenges happening around me where I was able to really hone in on my skill in those early days. And I think it gives me you know, a degree of, of understanding, a degree of being there and battled through. And I wonder as, as you look at your own career, whether you feel you need more diversity in, in the experiences you've had or whether you know you value and you have maybe excelled by being in one organization where you're the expert. No right answer, but definitely an area to always debate. We are back here on The Marketer's Journey with Paul French. Paul, we talked about the path to being a CMO and how you crossed over into sales. I'm wondering how you're seeing the role of content specifically change now that content is not necessarily something that's just going to live on the website, you know, but something that we have to weave into some of our sales outreach, some of the support that marketing may have to supply at different stages. Yeah. Well, content's great, right? And we all, uh, we all think it's wonderful because we want to pack our websites with SEO and we want to have all the great ideas for everybody to read, but it is got to be something that's contextual and it's got to be available and if you think about how we all like to consume content in the real world, we love when somebody presents us like, hey, other people like you saw value from this or or something like that. So we're really trying to get away from content for content's sake, um, largely because we know that it needs to better align with the way our customers want to buy the journey that they want to consume information. But also because the single to noise ratio in the world right now is just outrageous. And to break through, you have to be more authentic. I mean, it was something so much that when we reset the the Axway brand after I started a year ago, we made authentic one of the absolute guidelines of the brand because we know that we've got to get people to see who we are and why we are. And they have to do that through the content they consume when it matters to them, not just here it's on the website, go search for it because we've got lots of great meta tags. So I love hearing you describe this because it's something I, I'm very passionate about myself. And I think often we, we think about, well, what's that next blog post we're going to get out this week versus it sounds like you're trying to think more about the buyer journey. Maybe you can give us an example of what does your buyer look like today? And as a result, what are you trying to do to be more contextual, as you put it? Yeah, so we, we are, um, you know, we're about a 300 million euro company that operates all over the world. And we are in the um, integration business. And what we do is we take customers who have these old scale heritage infrastructures and we help them you know, bring digital experiences from them. 
And so we have a variety of different buyers, um, but we've, we've bucketed them really into three different specific areas. You have the people that own the business problem. So that could be the board of directors, the CEO, the head of digital, the head of transformation. You, own, you have the people who own the technical problem. So typically your CIOs, your heads of IT, your heads of development, things like that. And then you have the people who are responsible for the technical implementation or, or, or making it come to life. So your architects, your developers, your integration centers of excellence, you know, exciting places like that. And so we have um, a matrix approach where we look at the journeys associated with each of those. We have different type of content created depending on where they are in the journey. Uh, we've invested heavily in a, a group of people who are actually thought leaders, academics, people who have been senior executives, we call the catalysts, where we are able to kind of guide people from a, a place of experience and not necessarily just saying, like I said, go to the website, download it, surely you'll find something that's interesting to you. That's interesting. And, and I'm, I'm just curious, as you describe, and maybe I'll miscategorize them, but the three I heard is the business people, the tech people, and more kind of the implementation people. Are those buyers overlapping with each other? Or are they you know, through the journey? Or are they different segments that you may sell into? Both. Um, you, you really, you see, you see some people who are in the business problem challenge saying we're a company who's acquired five other companies around the world. And, and so we have five different discrete infrastructures. What is going to be our plan strategically at the business level to rationalize those things, to rationalize the associated business models? They could be one set of buyers. You have the people in the middle who say, um, okay, now over a five-year period where I gave the developing t developer team the opportunity to embrace APIs, for example. And now I have four different API gateways and I have uh, three different customer bases who all want to do things differently. What am I going to do to normalize that to get the experience that I'm trying to deliver? And in some cases, you have the very, you know, the implementation, they say, someone told me I need to go buy one of these. And so you have you have a very different experience. One, a, a, a story about transformation where you're really telling a story about how much better their world will look like when you're done. You have one in the middle that is that is largely a very measurable approach. You had this, then you'll have this. And what does that mean to the business? And in some cases, it's very much, well, I'm better, I'm faster, I'm more secure, I'm more effective. And you have to be able to deal with those all in a different way because they're all different people with different motivations. So Maybe just a, a quick last question here to, to wrap this piece up. But as you describe these different buyer segments, some who overlap, some who kind of see it from beginning to end, for people thinking about this and tying it back to their business, how do you as CMO prioritize which of these are we going to put our number one focus on? Because you know, I, I think that's the tricky part that, that you hear a lot of people struggle with today is moving from... I'm going to create content that talks about what my business stands for versus I'm going to create content that aligns to what my buyer is looking for. Yeah, it's a really, really hard question, especially, you know, and, and I'll, I'll add another another shade. Maybe it's a, a flavor of the former, which is as you're trying to reset your brand in the minds of the buyer, um, you have to do some of that stuff, right? Because you're trying to build you're trying to build a promise in their minds that then will be fulfilled by the things that you actually do or you can deliver and, and what they're specifically looking for. So the balance and the bias is really, really hard. What we've tried to do is to take a more complete view of all of the different buyers and what they're looking at from the, you know, why do anything, why do anything now, why do anything with Axway 
and it's worked well so far. I mean, we, my, my team has been unbelievable um, at de- delivering high value content and enough content in order to move the needle so that every single one of those journeys ends up with the right content along the line so we can actually move people through the funnel and, and give them the experience that they're looking for from Maxway. That's great. Well, Paul, this, is, this has been great so far. We're going to keep you around and talk a little bit more when it comes to journeys. We're going to get a little bit behind the scenes of your personal journey, uh, how you take time, especially amid the times we're in. We'll be right back here on The Marketer's Journey. So Paul just talked about this idea of not just creating all this content for people to find, but putting the right content in front of people. And it's interesting, back in the day, I think when it came to content and when it came to content marketing, there is this belief that if you build it, they will come, right? It's very Kevin Costner field of dreams, right? As long as we had all this content in the right location, be it a resource center, be it some sort of hub on our website, that in theory, people would find us. Now they would use SEO, they would find us in whatever way. But one of the things that has definitely changed in the last number of years is the buyer expects for you to guide them, not necessarily for you to expect them to come and search and find on Google and whatnot. And And I think that's a big shift that a lot of us as marketers have to get our heads around is that when it comes to content, it's no longer build it and they will come. It's guide them along the way. It's have the right assets for them at the right points, really provide those signposts at every stage of the buyer journey so that they can make the choices that are gonna help them get to the ultimate decision at the end of the day. And I think this is a shift that a lot of us are thinking. It's a big shift that we see in platforms like Netflix and Spotify that are there to ultimately guide us down a path of content, again, very different content, but what are you doing in your buyer journey? When you send someone an email, what are they being guided to next versus pushing them after that call to action to navigate an overwhelming site of content? These are the shifts that we have to make to ensure that people will buy from us at the end of the day. All right, Paul, we've unpacked your career journey, the buyer journey that you're creating around content specifically. Uh, how about taking a break? Uh, I know you got kids. I know you got other things keeping you up at night other than just you know hitting those revenue targets. How do you take a break for those things that are important to you? Yeah, I, um, I discovered fly fishing a few years ago. And so I have become and my family has become fairly committed fly fisher people um, so we have been recently building vacations around that where, unfortunately, in Texas, there's not a lot of trout fishing. You have to drive a little bit, but we just spent a week in Colorado doing that. And and we certainly love to get away, but we're not unlike a lot of people where getting away is something you have to choose to do because it doesn't naturally happen, especially in this day and age. Um, so I encourage all of our folks to get away. But I do try to bring the things that are passionate to me, like fly fishing into the things that we do. And we just did a a big workshop inside about what fly fishing can teach us about marketing because trout are pretty picky and what they choose to eat is pretty picky. And it actually lends itself really specifically to understanding your buyer and what they care about and what you have to, to feed them as they move themselves down the path. So I, I encourage like everybody that. to pick up a fly rod if they can. Personal analogies uh, sometimes bring out that, you know, simplify the most complex ideas. 
you know, I can relate to that. I mean, we, we don't fish my family, although my kids love it. You know, just being on the water, there's so much. And I, I've been spending the summer, given everything going on with COVID on the water myself. And there's just so such a different lens to the world. But it's one that you can relate back to with where we want to get to, which is often being a little bit more relaxed, a little bit more connected with what's going on around us. I can I can definitely relate to the fishing analogy there. Yeah, it helps you to be more purposeful. Absolutely. Well, Paul, this has been great. Uh, you know, how how can we uh, help people learn more about you, some of the things that you believe in? I know you've got a podcast. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. We're just actually launching it now. It's called Transform It Forward. And we're really focused on uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly of companies that are going through digital transformations, whether that's uh, specific projects or holistic transformations that companies are endeavoring to go through. I think what we all learned from COVID is that everything we thought that, you know, someday it would be great to be more digital. Um, those days are now and people are trying to hurry up and catch up. So That's great. That's great. Well, I assume that can be found eventually on Spotify and iTunes and all the other spots. All your favorite neighborhood podcast places. There you go. Well, same, same with our podcast here at The Marketer's Journey. If you've enjoyed listening to Paul and his story, you can check us out on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, pretty much anywhere you get your podcast to. Leave both of our podcasts a you know nice five-star review when you can. That's Transform It Forward. That's Paul French's and The Marketer's Journey, which you're listening to, to now. Until next time, thanks for joining us. You've been listening to the Marketer's Journey podcast. Big thanks to our sponsors at Uberflip, who help you fuel demand generation with content for an accelerated buyer journey. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify at uberflip.com slash podcast or anywhere you listen to podcasts.